and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we have a conversation with Rachel Greenwald-Smith. Now, I missed this one, but Medea and Kate were both on it. So, Medea, could you give our listeners a quick preview? Yeah, so Rachel Rachel Greenwald-Smith, her new book is called On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an American Ideal. And the book is an extremely interesting breakdown of compromise and a skeptical look on compromise as an inherently virtuous thing mm. and an inherently positive thing. And she makes a distinction between compromise as an end and as a means And so it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, Rachel has a lot of really almost counterintuitive ways to view compromise that Mm. I think our listeners will find both intriguing and interesting. That sounds great, especially in these kind of fractious times, thinking about compromise from a variety of different perspectives. I'm particularly excited to hear about this counterintuitive perspective on compromise. Sounds like a great thing. So should we get right to that conversation? Let's do it. We're happy to be speaking with the writer Rachel Greenwald Smith today. Smith is an associate professor at St. Louis University and the author of the book, American Literature in the Age of Neoliberalism. Her work has appeared in publications including the Virginia Quarterly Review, the Yale Review, and our own Los Angeles Review of Books. She joins us today to discuss her latest book, On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an American Ideal, which was just published by Grey Wolf. Uncompromised takes a critical look at liberalism's persistent push towards the center in both artistic and political realms. Instead of compromise as a measure of good in and of itself, Smith argues the values of illiberalism, passion, and commitment to a cause, aesthetic or otherwise. Her book explores how conflict and democracy needn't be thought of as opposing forces, and in doing so, interprets a wide range of contemporary culture from Beyonce's album Lemonade to David Foster Wallace's novel Infinite Jest, the history of poetry magazines, Guns N' Roses, the far right, Riot Girl, and her own experience playing in an indie rock band, which I hope she'll tell us a little bit more about. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks very much. I'm really happy to be here. Rachel, so I think we should start with a quick definition, if you can, of the two ways in which you split compromise in the very beginning of your book, because I think you sort of, you then proceed to build on those two distinctions or the halves of what compromise means. So maybe let's start there. What, how do you understand compromise? What's a useful way of sort of dissecting it as an idea? Sure. Well, early in the book, I make a distinction between compromise understood as a means and compromise understood as an ends. I think it's really important to think about compromise as something that on one hand we think about as a process, as something that we do in relation to one another. So we we compromise with each other and that process is often difficult, fraught with loss, frustrating. It often leaves both parties unhappy in various ways. I think the feelings we associate with that form of compromise are sort of begrudging acceptance, maybe a little bit of sadness, maybe a feeling like the struggle will continue in various ways to further get what one wants. And on the other hand, there's compromise understood as an end and to itself 
which I think of as more like thinking about compromises of value. And here I think about, say, in politics, for instance, centrist liberal arguments on behalf of compromise as a sort of positive political disposition. The idea that we need leaders who are interested in compromise, who are able to compromise. And that kind of invocation of compromise as a value, I think, happens in public media a lot without being very specific about what specifically one should be compromising on. And I think when we're not specific about that, what we can do is forget that especially political compromises, but also, as I talk about later in the book, compromises around art can lead us to really lose out in struggles for justice, political awareness, meaningful forms of dissent from the status quo. I mean, it's one of the most repeated truisms of late, which is that, you know, this is the nation is so polarized, it's threatening our democracy. Even the appeal of Biden was that he knew how to work both sides of the room and that he could bring us together. So maybe I'm curious if you believe, which I, from your book, don't think you do, that, you know, the polarization of the nation is threatening democracy. And if you don't, maybe you can explain why that's kind of a misleading idea. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's really tempting to think that way, right? I mean, I just went through a whole situation where I found out that someone that may be educating my child is very closely related to someone who's expressing what I consider to be proto-fascist beliefs on social media, right? And in that situation, I actually, I wrote an email to the principal about all of my concerns and ended with saying like, this is just the condition of our country today, (laughs) that people like me are going to actually get to the point where they don't feel comfortable having certain people educating their children because what I consider her possible political beliefs to be are based on what I consider be lies. And she probably considers what my political beliefs are as based on lies. Now, it's easy to look at that situation and say, well, when we get to this point in the country where people can't get along to the point where they can agree on basic truths, it is really tempting to say, well, we need to find some common ground, right? (laughs) And then that turns into the language of compromise. But taking, for instance, the example I just gave you about my disagreements or possible disagreements with this educator's political views, it's not true that both of our beliefs are based on lies, right? I mean, objectively speaking. And I think that especially on the left, when we start talking about how compromise is the solution of polarization, it's really easy to forget that it's possible that one side in this debate is actually doing harm to other people and the other side of the debate is not. Or that one person, like that one side of the debate is leading people to believe things that are not true and are intentionally misleading, and the other side is not. So the language of compromise can lead to a form of kind of both sidesisms that I think can be really problematic from the position of actually trying to achieve anything like, again, like a just society. You even talk about an experience you had in your neighborhood which you say is pretty run of the mill in terms of, you know, political beliefs or party preference, also class, even the sizes of the homes are like middle of the road for St. Louis, neither large nor small. And you're not afraid to identify a neighbor, you know, as someone you don't want to talk with and who's basically like some version of an enemy. And I think part of your argument is that we shouldn't be afraid to say who our friends are and who our enemies are. Maybe you could talk about that and kind of where you are pulling that thought from. 
Yeah, well, I pull the friend-enemy distinction awkwardly from the political theorist Carl Schmitt, who was associated with the Third Reich. And it's an uncomfortable source for me to pull that distinction from, for obvious reasons. And I do write about that in the book, about my ambivalence and fear of drawing those concepts from him. Schmitt was a terrible person in a lot of ways, but he was a really powerful critic of a form of liberal thinking that he saw as on the rise in the early 20th century and sort of exemplified in the Weimar government in Germany in the 20s and 30s. And what he saw was what he called the attempt to sort of erase the political or the attempt to erase the distinction between friends and enemies, which he saw as the sort of basis for political action or political thinking. And he thought that was dangerous. He thought that if we can't identify who our friends and who our enemies are, if we back away from politics, then we're likely to channel our hostilities in all sorts of other ways. And I think that might be a better answer actually to your question about polarization in the sense that maybe what we're seeing today isn't polarization as we might think of it in terms of a difference of political views, but something more like partisanship, which is really about believing that the people that you agree with are better people than the people you disagree with, right? So it's a personalization, it's a moralization, it's a way of thinking about politics as cultural rather than being about power. And that leads people to hate each other rather than just disagree with each other. And so what Schmidt says, and again, you know, I recognize that he's a super complicated source, but there are people like the French political theorist Chantal Mouffe, who I think have updated his thinking away from the sort of fraught Nazi history with him. But his argument is basically that if we do allow ourselves to think in terms of friends and enemies, if we do allow ourselves to see the political as a space of contestation around power and how resources are going to be distributed in society, then we don't need to make up other reasons for disagreeing with one another. (laughs) And we can actually locate, you know, okay, this person is my friend in the sense that like, this is a person who wants to live in the same kind of world I want to live in, meaning wants the same kind of social structures in place, wants the same forms of distribution of resources, wants the same ways of identifying what kinds of social practices should be used and should be abolished, friendship like that rather than friendship like this person is a good person and so am I, (laughs) which is sort of the moral distinction. So I think that those terms can really make people uncomfortable. And I've had several people read drafts of this book and say like, oh, I just wish you would take all the friend enemy stuff out of there. And that chapter that you mentioned about my neighbor was by far the scariest to write. I gave that at a conference once and I had someone come up to me saying afterwards, after we had a drink, and she said, you know, it turns out you're really nice, but I read that paper before I met you and I thought that you were going to be really mean. So I was really like, I was concerned about it, but I also think it's just such an important distinction to figure out how to make. And if the person that can help us make that distinction is Carl Schmidt, you know, I have to use him. Well, so one of the things that maybe that we can we should talk about now that we're also talking about Carl Schmidt and that he's come up is the dangers that you acknowledge in this book of illiberalism. I mean, one of the really interesting and important arguments that you make here is that liberalism is really hard to argue against. And one of those reasons is that illiberalism feels so much aligned with something like fascism or other forms of repression an oppression that it makes it even harder to argue with what liberalism is. So could you maybe talk a little bit about what you mean 
when you say illiberalism in this book, but also some of the dangers that you're trying to avoid and and ways in which you'd like to kind of repurpose that term. Yeah, I mean, I think that liberalism, so liberalism in itself is a hard term to define, right? I mean, it itself is so baggy. And in fact, part of the difficulty in figuring out a way to argue against it is to try to locate it enough to hit it with a dart. You know, it seems like liberalism itself is always kind of moving around. But let's say we define liberalism sort of in a traditional political theory kind of way as a belief in individual freedom as primary So that's one cluster of ways of thinking about liberalism is about individual freedom and liberty. Another way that liberalism appears in political theory is as a sort of way of thinking about political discourse as based in reason and processes like compromise and moderation. And those two things get are sort of can be disaggregated and they sometimes come in a package together. In that case, then illiberalism is the belief that there are situations under which individual freedom may not be the most important value in a social situation. And that is a really hard thing to talk about, especially in the United States, when you know we're a country based on maybe that value first and foremost. And illiberalism also might be an appeal to forms of engagement with other people that are maybe loud, extreme, unwieldy, upsetting, maybe intentionally so, antagonistic. And it's sort of all of those things that I'm interested in in the book. And I find art actually, I mean, this is the other part of the book. It's a book about politics and about art. And I find art to be a really useful resource to go to, to look for how those sort of, especially on this sort of second cluster of things I just mentioned, extremity, anger, antagonism, about how those kinds of feelings and forms of discourse can be useful politically and can exist without turning into actual physical violence, right? So yes, illiberalism has been associated with fascism. It's also been associated with other forms of anti-capitalism, or should we, we, I should probably just say forms of anti-capitalism, because I think of fascism as something kind of intimately tied to capitalism. So on the one hand, fascism is illiberal because fascism is a movement based on extremity, on valuing force, on disregarding individual freedom. But also if we think our way around alternatives to capitalism, we also, I think, need to engage with illiberalism insofar as individual freedom is essentially, in my opinion, a capitalist value. And that as soon as we start thinking beyond the market as a way of determining how social resources get distributed, we do need to start thinking about forms of social engagement that may involve planning, (laughs) that may involve deprivation of certain kinds of individual freedom, and that may also not proceed in ways that sort of follow the sort of liberal values of reason, debate, and discourse. So at the end of the book, I turn to the idea very briefly, kind of flirtingly with the idea of revolution. And I think revolution as a concept is an illiberal concept, right? It's not something, revolution isn't something that we achieve by talking nicely to one another and respecting everybody as having the sort of same value to their opinions. So those are, again, they're hard things to talk about politically, but I like talking about them in art maybe because one can get away from some of the messiness. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I 
I do think it is much easier to talk about these values in art than in politics because it doesn't affect, you know, the prospect doesn't affect so much what we value in terms of quality of life, giving things up, you know, letting go of resources, things that are scary and that no one except people who are very politically engaged, you know, think about, I think. But at the same time, you don't really see art in a vacuum. And so I guess that's something I'd be curious to talk about. And you have a great term in the book, which is compromise aesthetics. And I think that that is uh, pretty tied for you to kind of some of the last few decades politically. So I wonder if you could explain what compromise aesthetics are and where they come from and why they've been so persistent. So the book actually originated as an academic book that was going to be called Compromise Aesthetics. And it was going to be a sort of traditional scholarly monograph that was going to look at contemporary literature from, say, the 90s to the present, engaging with what I saw as a major shift in literary form beginning with figures such as David Foster Wallace, who sort of carries a lot of the weight of this example in the book, but a whole group of writers in the 1990s who expressed exhaustion with the expectation that they needed to be either conventional, mainstream, and sort of approachable for mainstream audiences on the one hand, or avant-gardist, experimental, and difficult on the other. And you see this all over the writing of writers in the 1990s. And critics such as Stephanie Burt have made really persuasive arguments about how the institutional culture within MFA programs, for instance, led to this situation. And I, I think that, let me start by saying that I think it's really important to be empathetic to writers that found themselves in this conundrum, because I think writers in the 90s really did feel trapped between two pretty, at that point, pretty institutionalized aesthetics. So sort of, you know, again, kind of a mainstream, formally tight, but very easily accessible aesthetic disposition on the one hand, and like a really kind of self-righteously um, <laughs> sort of articulated mandate that one be difficult along the lines of, say, the sort of white male postmodernists on the other. And that a lot of writers didn't want that choice. And I completely understand not wanting that choice. What happened, though, is that beginning in the 1990s, we started to see, I think, publishing institutions seize on the opportunity to market the innovations of these writers really effectively because what they were offering audiences was essentially the opportunity to get to be a little bit smart, read something a little bit challenging, engage with something that felt difficult but wasn't really, <laughs> and still get the pleasure of reading something that was basically, you know, a page turner in the case of the novel. And once publishers seized upon that, it became the sort of general expectation of what literary fiction and I think in a different way, poetry started to look like. I think it's we're still in that moment where most contemporary works of literary fiction and really successful books of poetry are compromises between experimental gestures and sort of popularly accessible forms. And even prestige television has basically gone in this direction, right? Like there's a use of sort of surface formal experimentation at the service of audience engagement. And, you know, that's all fine and good, except that what it leads to is a sort of meta discourse about writing that says that the avant-garde is dead, that there's no point in being experimental anymore, that to position oneself as experimental is naive and disregarding the reality of the literary market. And that meta discourse is something that really troubles me because I think it it's a concession to a sort of apoliticism on the formal level in art. 
that I think is sad and leaves out a lot of possible gestures that would fall more in line with something like a conventional avant-gardism. I think you use Wallace really interestingly in this as an example of this. Can you talk a little bit about why you find Wallace, David Foster Wallace, so an infinite jest in particular, so useful for this kind of compromise aesthetics and as a, an example of it? David Foster Wallace, in a, one of his interviews, sort of a famous interview with Charlie Rose, described his work in Infinite Jest as a compromise, which is convenient for me. So he said that he was trying to write something that a reader would read, but that was still extremely difficult in some ways, that was sort of unmooring in certain ways. And so the footnotes in Infinite Jest, I guess they're endnotes in Infinite Jest, were for him a kind of compromise. And then he further goes on to describe further compromises that he made in the sense that he wanted the end notes to be much longer, but his agent or editor, I can't remember which, I think it was his editor, made him make them shorter. So there's two different compromises that are happening there. There's a compromise that he's making in his attempt to sort of make his experimental gestures digestible. And then there's the sort of compromise that happens on the level of literary institution, which is always happening, which is, you know, marketing. And like, people aren't going to read this book if it has... 800 pages of endnotes, but 300 pages of endnotes are fine, whatever. So that's convenient in terms of Wallace actually describing his work that way. I also find Wallace useful because he, I mean, I think he was historically the writer who, first of all, defended this kind of position really vocally. So he has an essay called E Unibus Plurum, where he basically argues that postmodern experimentation has hit a dead end because of its appropriation by popular media like television and that there may be a need to return to what he calls single entendre values. So he sort of admits a kind of conservatism or a kind of at least an emotional conservatism, let's say, in his work that he sees as necessary in relation to the contemporary social climate. In that sense, he's a kind of tragic figure in that he, like all of us in certain ways, fell into compromise because of the structural forces around him. He existed at this specific historical moment he saw avant-gardism of the type that he saw around him failing to provide social critique that was meaningful. And he was just looking around for something else that would work, right? But like many of the writers that I look at in the book and many of the writers that to me are sort of the figures that we might associate with compromise aesthetics, he ends up getting used in mainstream literary culture as sort of a figure to hold up as an ideal, which then other writers are meant to mimic and use as a model. And at that point, then he becomes a marketing strategy rather than an artist stuck in a conundrum. <laughs> You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Rachel Greenwald-Smith, author of On Compromise. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Nawaz Ahmed back on the line with us. Nawaz is the author of Radiant Fugitives, and he joins us for this week's book recommendation. So Nawaz, what book are you recommending? I am recommending this book that had a huge impact on me when I was coming out. It's called Funny Boy by Sham Silvaturai. Oh, wait, can you, I have not read it. I will definitely read I love all like coming out stories, but can you tell me a little bit about the book and how you discovered it? This book came out in 1994, and to my knowledge, it's the first book that had a South Asian gay character in it. And until then, in India, all the books I had read 
I hadn't actually come across any queer character. The one was a very small mention that I found in um, Jacqueline Susan's Valley of Dolls, if you can. But I still loved that just because that was the first thing that I had seen. And so when I came across this in 1994, it was an eye-opening thing. There was first a New Yorker story that published the, the first chapter, which is about this boy, R.G., who dresses up as a girl and plays the bride in all the games that his group of children play. And it was like seeing me on page. <laughs> oh, wait, this was adapted for film, right? Didn't uh, Deepa Mehta did yes. a film version of this? Exactly. Okay. It's and like, it sounded familiar, but I was like, I don't remember it being she, a book. She so. did. And I reread it just because of having watched the movie this year, I reread it. And I have to say that the book is even better than I remember it now than I remembered it. Because apart from a coming out story, it is also a novel about a country that will descend into civil war. Mm. And that this juxtaposition of this coming out amidst this civil war which will overtake the country was just completely powerful. I would like to read one sentence, if you would allow me, just because I would like to put the book in context as to why I think it's so timely even now. And this comes towards the end after the RG character has grown up and after growing up, he has seen the love between an aunt of his and a Sinhalese man is disrupted. He has seen uh, an employee of his father who has been terminated because terminated as in let go because Mm. he uh, is suspected of being an extremist. And then the book ends with this civil war that will overtake the country. And so here's the sentence that speaks to me even now. How was it that some people got to decide what was correct or not, just or unjust? It had to do with who was in charge. Everything had to do with who held power and who didn't. And I think that just summarizes his own sexuality and his culture's looking down on it as well as these other things that were happening in the country. Right. That's great. Can you, um, so Nawaz, can you give us the title and the author one more time? The book is Funny Boy by Sham Salvadurai. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Nawaz Ahmed, author of Radiant Fugitives. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Rachel Greenwald-Smith, author of On Compromise. What's interesting in the book, I think, is this um, exploring, you know, this kind of dichotomy of people who sell out or don't sell out and how that's so ridiculous and false because you're always forefronting, you know, structural inequalities and basically like that no one is opting out of capitalism anyways. So I guess, how do you square that? The fact that, you know, the avant-garde, it would be really essentially like a performance of antagonism if someone is still within living within a certain structure with then this kind of like 
leavening towards a center. I know that's a, no, that's a mixed metaphor. And also, I'm also curious just where you think pleasure and kind of, um, you know, authentic work. You also talk a little bit about this, the idea that, you know, each individual work needs to be the best version of itself. Do you think that's false as well? Right. No, that's a really good question. So yeah, and the the book is kind of making two arguments at once. On the one hand, it's making an argument that we really lose when we do away with the concept of avant-gardism. Believing that the avant-garde is dead is bad for art, and it's probably bad for the politics of art. So it's making that argument on the one hand. On the other hand, it is also making the argument that under capitalism, there's really no way to get fully outside the system. And that's important politically because of the argument the book makes about individual morality not being the same thing as politics, right? It's that my personal choice to do X or Y is not where politics resides because there are these enormous forces that are determining the ways in which resources are allocated. And fighting those forces is important, but whether or not I buy an organic cotton shirt is not actually going to be the big difference between how that happens, unfortunately. So in the context of art, I make a similar argument, which is that it's not, I think the concept of compromise aesthetics has been misunderstood by some of my friends and colleagues at times as an academic concept in saying that I'm trying to somehow like shame um, writers who are just trying to make a buck, (laughs) which is not what I'm trying to do. Um, And I think we're all just trying to make a buck and we're all doing our best. And it's also true. I think it's really important to say that the people that have the least flexibility to stand in opposition to capitalism are often people who are most deprived of the resources as they are currently allocated under capitalism. So the demand that people somehow have some pure relationship to the cultural field is particularly damaging for people who are maybe newly giving given access to the cultural field in the first place. So I think all of those disclaimers aside, I think the concept of the avant-garde is important to hold on to because it says that art can still be a site for refusal. And on a formal level, it's important to me because I'm someone who believes that artistic form is important when it's unmooring to, to us in some way. When we're reading a novel or a work of poetry or we're watching a fabulous television show or a film, and something happens on the level of form or aesthetics in that object that kind of doesn't sit right, that feels so uncomfortable that we don't know how to assimilate it. And if the formal gestures that are sort of experimental that are appearing in our media and culture are sort of appearing in these kind of pat gimmicky ways, that's not going to happen. It's often been under the banner of the avant-garde that those kinds of formal gestures happen. Now, to say that that's important and to say that it's important that we hold on to a concept of the avant-garde in hopes that such things are still possible, that unmooring formal experiences in art are still possible, is not to say that avant-garde will, will be able to maintain purity in relation to capitalism or in relation to the capitalist cultural sphere. Avant-garde will have always and will be appropriated, capitulate, be impure, be politically unruly and start to, in some way, you know, we see this in historically with movements like futurism that end up being associated with fascism, right? So avant-gardisms are not places where we're going to look for political success in art, but they are places where we can look for art to sort of challenge some kind of basic disposition we might have toward the world. And so I think holding that complexity is really important. It's one of the things I'm trying to do in the book. 
Is this a good time to talk about Beyonce? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Beyonce. All right. Um, I mean, so she seems like, you know, a, a person, well, or her work rather, I, I'm not sure like her as a human, <laughs> but her work and especially like formation, which is something that you discuss in this book as sort of being in that existing within that kind of tension between probably the most kind of successful artistic <laughs> enterprise we can imagine. Um, and at the same time, uh, an invocation and a reference to and an allusion and, and and a harnessing of like radical black politics. And there's ways in which like you talk about how we would, you know, one, the, the capital success might sort of tempt us to disqualify the other or disqualify the messenger in some capacity. But can you talk about a work like formation that sort of lives between these really complicated sort of dynamics um, and kind of embodies them. And it's in the Super Bowl, which is also like <laughs> kind of amazing um, or the halftime show rather. Do you mind talking about that? Yeah, this might actually let me answer Kate's question in a more articulate way. We'll see. Um, because it does actually relate to pleasure and sort of works of art that are pleasurable for us too. I think Beyonce, at least for me, is somebody like that. So Beyonce is a figure who we would be tempted, or I think many people would be tempted to see as either purely liberatory or purely corrupt, <laughs> right? And the Super Bowl performance that she did of formation when she marched out onto the field with all these dancers that were dressed like um, Black Panther activists pushes, in some ways, really should make us ask that question, you know? I mean, it's like, it's shoving together two things that seem utterly incompatible, right? Like a multi-billion dollar, is she a billionaire? She's probably a billionaire, right? Can I say that? Anyway, one of the most successful entertainers of all time who is like on every form of media and um, can in no way be seen as oppositional on the level of art, right? <laughs> in the sense that she's, she's so popular on the one hand, and someone who's invoking this history of Black power that still makes a lot of Americans really uncomfortable on the other. Um, and I have a couple of things to say about that. One is something I don't say in the book, which maybe I should have said in the book, which is that given that tension, it's really strange that more people weren't talking about that tension after that Super Bowl performance. What ended up being talked about mostly was like the courageous use of Black Panther iconography in the performance. And I think maybe that should be the thing that we're talking about. But nobody was talking about how weird the contradiction was. And I think that we should pause there because the Panthers were, you know, aside from being a Black power group, they were also an anti-capitalist group. And I, I think that, you know, more thought maybe should have gone on about that contradiction and what it meant in terms of where we are right now and thinking about the relationship between race and capitalism. But the other thing, um, and this is what I talk about in the book, is that she's a really great example of how it is actually possible to think with two sides of one's brain at the same time about this issue, right? Like it is possible to say like, Beyonce is not a good source for a critique of capitalism. She is a shame, you know, she has that lyric, I might just be a black Bill Gates in the making, right? And that's true about her. And on the other hand, she also has been a figure that has really pushed everyday American citizens to think much harder about race and gender and, you know, intersectional black feminism, basically. She's taken 
Black feminism and brought it to the mainstream in a way that's incredibly important. And I think that it's, I mean, maybe this is a really boring thing to say, but I think it's really important to be able to hold both of those things in our heads at the same time. And the book in some ways is a, an argument in favor of being able to do so, because I think when we can do hold both of those things in our heads at the same time, we actually can be maybe a little bit more optimistic about what art can do politically, because it doesn't seem like it just constantly is nothing but capitulation. But we can also make more demands because we can also see where art is being complicit and say, well, what would this look like if it wasn't the case? Or if we had more opportunities to not base artistic production on a market logic, what would that look like? So yeah, Beyonce is an amazing figure to think through those things. Totally. And it, it reminds me a little bit of, um, about, because I wanted to talk about your experience playing music, you know, how you describe compromise kind of like as a ve- as a vessel that has tension in it. And so it, it's a way to kind of bring um, ideas forth that wouldn't on their own, you know, just purely wouldn't catch on or would would be uncomfortable, but you bring them in this like more easily digestible way and kind of hide them and then they're there. And it's like playing music, you guys tried to be sexy and look good, but you were also one of the few like all women bands playing, but you played up your femininity because that was kind of the shtick. But at the same time, it was the fact that you were women playing music, which was rare. So maybe you could talk about that. And um, also you never named that what, your band was and, and was I tried to look it up. I'm just curious what it what why why are you so ashamed? What are you hiding? Tell us what it was. That's really funny. Um, I'm not ashamed. My band was well. The, the name was not something I chose, but the the name. Uh, but I ended up kind of growing. It grew on me finally. But the band was called Looker, um, which it was. We sort of imagined a sort of a blondie kind of you know thing, like kind of ironic, like. And we, I left the band like. I realized this thinking about the internet presence of the band. I left the band basically right when camera video, like smartphones started having video cameras on them, whenever that was like right around, it was right around, it was, I think I left in 2007. So the result of that is that there's almost no YouTube presence of me in this band on the internet. There used to be like one video, (laughs) which I suppose I could like share with you if you're curious, maybe not with your entire listening audience. Um, But, um, and it's totally embarrassing as one would probably expect. Uh, So yeah, so there's, I'm not trying to be coy. I just sort of, I guess I just didn't put it in there. That's interesting. I didn't name most people in the book. Maybe that's just partly because I'm a scaredy cat and partly because I'm not a very practiced nonfiction writer, but the band, what you were saying about the band experience is right. And that it, the way that I talk about it in order to think about how the mandate to sell one's work changes the production of that work. And that chapter has a kind of nostalgic look back to the music scene that I grew up in, which was the music scene in Portland in the early 1990s, which like everything I discuss in the book with any sort of love had all sorts of problems too. It was a scene that was too white and too homogenous in all sorts of other ways, too male for sure. But it was based on an idea of kind of reciprocity and scene building and community as much as it was based on individual success. Um, And there were a couple of bands that came into Portland 
during that time that were more interested in prioritizing national success. And so here I will name names. So bands like Everclear, for instance, that showed up in, in Portland during that time. And they were really summarily kind of like pushed out of the scene because they were seen as opportunistic and not oriented toward the community. Um, so there's a good example of kind of friends and enemies, right? Like it was sort of like a, a scene and a community protecting itself against the poison of, of ambition, of a kind of national ambition. And when I started playing music 10 years later in the early 2000s in New York, it seemed to me anyway that, that things had shifted so dramatically on a sort of institutional level where, and this was maybe that this is the difference between Portland and New York, but it's also the difference between the early 90s and the early 2000s, where individual sort of, or band focused ambition toward national success, prioritizing that, prioritizing becoming famous essentially, wasn't seen as embarrassing or problematic or something that would get you pushed out of a community. It was just seen as what everybody was doing. And clubs were booking bands that didn't have anything to do with each other, that didn't have that had a that had sounds that were dramatically different, often intentionally, so that they could get different crowds in and out every night and make five times as much money on cover charges. And it put bands in direct competition with one another. And there was no way to avoid participating in that. So part of the like dolling oneself up and looking sexy as a girl band was like, we were in a position where our survival was re required behaving that way. Um, and it didn't make me feel good. But I also don't think that we, we were wrong to do what we did because it was the, you know, it was the ecosystem we were <laughs> existing within. And we did our best to find friends and develop communities as we could find them. But we were in an institutional structure that was absolutely geared toward destroying those things. You know, I, personally, it was an incredible experience. I love playing in a band. I really miss it. But um, as a way, casting back on it and thinking about it socially, it it's depressing to think that that's where the culture went. Maybe we can end on some a vision of of because I, I do think you you do present some really kind of I don't know if they're utopic, but they they are kind of a beautiful vision of what compromise could affect and maybe and way beautiful I think I, I'm using that loosely because I, I I do think that you you are clear that there are ways in which it's actually you know it's not pretty it's not a pretty process or not and, and ways that it can actually in fact be quite ugly but maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you envision the progress of something like compromise and where it might go, because I, I do think a lot of people will have that question in mind when they're reading this book, if you can sort of envision what it might look like if things go well, <laughs> or if things keep keep going in the wrong direction. <laughs> um, sure. So the last chapter of the book is about it's set during the COVID lockdowns of March and April 2020, during the shelter in place orders. And it's a meditation on scarcity, um, or at least that's the way I think about that final chapter. And in it, I think about how difficult life felt for me as someone who has incredible privilege just generally, and then specific privilege in relation to COVID-19 insofar as, you know, I happened to work in a field that didn't require me to show up in person anywhere. 
my home was a safe one that I could, you know, be in physically in a way that didn't feel dangerous. I have a partner and a child who I really like spending time with, you know, so on and so forth. So in almost every way, um, the lockdown for me was something that that was easier than it was for other people. And yet what I experienced was this sort of sense of, well, I think what many people experienced was, was this sense of panic around certain forms of scarcity, around having options shut down all around me. And so I used that oper- that sort of setting to think about um, how scarcity affects us emotionally and also how scarcity is used politically to force us into sort of zero-sum games that make compromises feel impossible. And one of the things that I sort of hope for at the end of that chapter, after doing a lot of reflecting on the ways in which privileged people maybe, I hope, might have woken up a little bit to what scarcity feels like as a result of even having a little bite of it during the COVID lockdown. Maybe that's the only good thing that could have come out of the COVID lockdown is that privileged people might have had just even a tiny taste of what really being exposed to scarcity feels like. I I sort of ask at the end of that chapter, well, what if we were in a situation of abundance? And you know, the, as Jeff Bezos reminded us when he got, he went to space and threw Skittles at his brother for 15 minutes in zero gravity and then came down and thanked all of the employees of Amazon and all of the people who have bought Amazon products for allowing him to have this experience, right? He like reminded us what surplus value is essentially in that moment, that it's extracting, you know, wealth from the society and putting it in the hands of a single person in this case. He reminded us, thanks thanks Jeff Bezos, that we are a society of abundance. It's just that all of our resources are concentrated in the hands of very, very few people. And if, if Jeff Bezos wasn't going to space, compromises would be a lot easier because we wouldn't be trying to figure out how to live with one another in a situation of deprivation. If the book is hopeful, I don't know if that's, <laughs> you, you wanted me to end on a hopeful note. I don't know if that's hopeful, but it's just to say that, that, that abundance is something that is available to us, you know, and, and that compromise, I think we all know from personal interactions that compromising when everybody is fed and everybody, but fed emotionally and physically, those kinds of compromises are pretty easy. It's when we feel like what we're giving up is like our last little bit of something, that um, things get really hard. Thank you, Rachel, so much for talking with us today. Thank you. That was Rachel Greenwald-Smith. Her new book is called On Compromise. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please, Rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.